All right. Well, good morning. morning. It's a wonderful morning, and uh, we're here to talk about giving. And for those of you who don't know me, or like, why is this guy up here? He's only been here for a few months. What's going on here? Uh, Just by way of introduction, my name is Fred Perry. I am Robin's husband. Ah, and so if you know her, you know that I am blessed abundantly more than I can ask or imagine. So it's wonderful. I'm also Heidi's dad and Caitlin's dad and Winston's dad and Wyatt's dad. But Wyatt, he's living in Greenville. He hasn't been here. So that's who I am. Um, I have known the church and known Dan for about five or six years. Um, My wife and my oldest daughter had come to an ACBC conference here um, years ago, and they met Dan, and like, hey, you should listen to this guy, he's great, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll listen to him, do that, and, and then my nephew Jeff gets saved, and we're looking for a church for him, and so the lights go out, <laughs> but, now you can see better now, right, okay, so anyway, uh, we're looking for a church for him, and he was looking around, and I said, we'll just come up here and go to church with you, we were in Georgetown at the time, and so we came up, and it happened that weekend that his daughter was sick, and so he couldn't come, and so we came, And come to find out, in God's goodness, our coming here wasn't for Jeff, it was for me. And so it was a wonderful blessing to hear Dan preach from Philippians 2, and it just encouraged my soul and fed me. And I was in the midst of a very difficult situation at that time. I was the pastor of counseling discipleship down in Georgetown, and myself and the other pastor were having some difficulties. And Dan met with me several times and talked with me over the phone, gave me some wise counsel, and so I have... Known and loved Dan for several years. So he's a blessing. So. All right. And so to be here today is, is just uh, much more than I could have asked or thought. So. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and and we are amazed by your grace. We're thankful for all the work that you are doing in and through your church, through your word that is ministered faithfully. We thank you for the privilege we have to meet together and to learn more about what you have said, especially this morning about giving. We thank you that you are our example that you gave your son, that we might have forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you that you help us to see how to truly be cheerful givers in all aspects of our life. We ask that you would give us wisdom this morning so that we can truly understand more and more about the finances that you have entrusted to us and how we can be more and more every day a cheerful giver Because, Lord, you have said you love a cheerful giver. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the subject of giving money, we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks. It's not about giving other things, giving of your time, giving of your effort. Um, Giving of those things, I know we know very well about. Because uh, yesterday, there were about 20-some people showed up at my house. And we moved a four-bedroom house across town in four and a half hours. So... You know how to give of your time and your effort, and and I'm sure you know about giving of your finances as well, but we want to talk a little bit more about that, because there's a lot of confusion in the church about giving financially. I grew up in the church, and I've heard all kinds of different things, and I was confused. 
And do I tithe? Do I give an offering? Do I give this? Do I give that? How much and how little and how often and things like that? And so I wanted to know because God loves a cheerful giver. And if I don't know what I'm doing, how can I be a cheerful giver? If I think I'm breaking a law, if I think I'm not following a rule, if my heart is not right. And God wants us to be a cheerful giver. And so he has given us much to read and to talk about and to study about giving and in our case, we're going to see it's giving as an act of grace. All right? So here's a little introduction for us. We're going to be walking through these things and understanding some basics of the preliminary truths about finances God has entrusted to us as a foundational kind of reminder, if you will. And then we're going to be looking at giving as an act of grace. And does the Bible really call it that? And where does it say that if that's what we're going to be doing? And today we're going to look specifically at tithing. That's where we're going to spend most of, our, most of our time today, about tithing and what is that and is that for today as well. And then going forward over the next few weeks, we're going to take 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and we're going to walk through those two chapters and see evidences of giving as an act of grace. And there are quite a few different things within that passage that help us to see that giving is an act of grace and what it looks like and what our hearts should be. And it's been so helpful for me and so freeing to be able to give as an act of grace, having studied these passages. One uh, guy wrote, Ben Rogers, he once wrote this, he says, When you go to the doctor for an annual checkup, he will often begin to poke and prod and press various places, all the while asking, does this hurt? And how about this? And if you cry out in pain, one of the two things have happened. Either the doctor has pushed you hard without the right sensitivity, or more likely there's something wrong and the doctor will say, we better do some more tests because it's not supposed to hurt there. So it is when t churches teach on financial responsibility and certain members cry out in discomfort, criticizing the messenger and the message. Either the teacher has pushed too hard or perhaps there's something else wrong. In that case, he says, my friend, we're in need of the great physician because it's not supposed to hurt here. We're to be cheerful givers. It's supposed to be a blessing to us. And so we're going to start to look at these today. And if you have a, need a memory verse for this study, here's one that's helpful. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And each time you want to give, remember that verse. Am I doing it grudgingly, under compulsion, or cheerfully? However God would have me do it. What have I purposed in my heart to give? And that's our verse that we're going to be coming back to. So, as we begin today, we're going to look at, in your notes there, the preliminary truths about the finances that God has entrusted to us. And we underline there, the, the word is entrusted, right? These are the things that God has entrusted to us. And we find that, number one, God owns it all, right? All the finances we have, everything that we have. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. All of it. Psalm 50 in verse 10 and through 12, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. 
I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains, it's all the Lord's. Fairly clear there. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. So whose possessions are they? The Lord's. Everything I moved yesterday, it's the Lord's. And he has entrusted that to me. Haggai 2.8, pretty clear. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. If you want to talk about the monetary aspect of it. It's his, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, so God owns it all. And we start with that foundation. I remember growing up, it would be like, oh, you need to tithe. And so 10% is the Lord. The other 90% is mine to do whatever I want with. It's all the Lord's. And that other 90%, there are principles God has given us as well. Now, we're gonna, not going to go over those in this study, but there are other principles for everything and every dollar that God has entrusted to us where we can use them in a way that is pleasing to him. The second thing we see there, I am a steward, not an owner. That should be clear from the first one, that God owns it all, right? Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Whose garden is it? It's God's. It's the Lord's. And we was to cultivate it and keep it, and even the earth have dominion over that. Still the, still the Lord's. In Luke 16.10-12, through 12, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? So we're to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. And he will, in the context there of the unrighteous steward, but the example of theirs... We are to be faithful. These things have been trusted to us. We're going to see in 2 Corinthians 9 and verses 10 through 11, who supplies these things? God supplies seed to the sower and bread for food and will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality through which, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And so God provides it all and he gets all the glory as we are good stewards of what he has entrusted to us. And you'll see it going on down there as well in other places. God provides it. We are stewards of it. And he gets all the glory. All right. Number three there. Every good thing I have has been given to me, not truly earned by me. Sometimes that's hard to understand. Sometimes it's hard for people to give up their money to church or other things like that because I gave my life for this money. Literally, I gave 40 hours a week of my life to get this money. I earned it and it is mine. I gave my life for this. Could have been doing something I enjoyed. And so it's hard sometimes to think about that, but truly, that's the case. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 11 is one example of this. As Israel is getting ready to cross the Jordan to go in and take the promised land, he reminds them, don't forget who gives you the ability to make money. He says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. And I want to go back and I want to read some more of that. Those are just the key parts there, but... It talks about everything that we are doing and what we end up doing in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. If you want to turn there. 
It says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes when I am, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good homes and lived to them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. Verse 17, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is the one who gives us the ability to even make money. So everything that we have is given to us, not truly earned. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 there says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you didn't receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? James 1, 17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So every good thing I have been given has been given to me, not truly earned by me. So when I think about the money or I get my paycheck and here is mine, God gave me the ability to do this. It's God's. And how can I be a good steward of what he has blessed me with? Number four there, all I have been given is to be freely used to meet needs and glorify God. Sometimes it's our needs. You know, God gives us money to take care of our things and food, clothing, and shelter, but also to help others. We may save some and to further his kingdom, right? To glorify God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. What do we work? So we'll have something to share. Instead of taking from others, we are ready to give to others. In Luke chapter 3, and verse 11, And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with he who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So we share, and we meet needs with what God has entrusted to us, and that glorifies God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, each one has, given, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we're talking specifically about the uh, spiritual gifts that we have, but sometimes there's a spiritual gift of giving as well. But we're all to be using whatever God has given us, employing it in serving one another as good stewards as the manifold grace of God. So those are the preliminary truths about what God has entrusted to us. But as I said, I sometimes we're like, okay, yeah, I believe that. God owns it all. I'm a steward. I didn't earn anything. This is what really God has given to me and, and I want to be able to use it to meet needs and glorify God. And you know, I'm 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 a I don't deny those truths, right? But, how much should I give? How often should I give? Should I tithe? What if I don't have enough to tithe? Should I even call it a tithe? Or is it an offering? Or is it both? Or is it neither? Have you ever heard any of those different things in the church? I've heard all of them. And I'm like, I don't understand. Giving is so confusing. How could I possibly be a cheerful giver? I agree, right? 
Well, God has given us the answer. And he helps us to see those things. And so, instead of trying to coerce people or manipulate people or have fun drives or do these things like that to try to... We want to go to the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to use that to work in your heart so that you can be a cheerful giver. So that you can give whatever you purposed in your heart according to God's Word. And so we're going to look at giving as an act of grace, right? And... You may think, well, why are we calling it an act of grace? What does that mean? How does that come about that? Is this just something Fred came up with because he thinks it's fun and, and it looks good? Well, no, the Bible actually talks about giving as an act of grace. And that's been so helpful for me to just think about it that way. This is an act of grace. When I give to the church, when I give to meet needs, when I give in other areas, okay? It's described that way in Acts in 2 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. That's going to be the main part of our study as we go through this. But for today, we're just going to look at where it says it is an act of grace. And if you go through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll find that 10 times the word grace is used just in this context of giving. And in the context here, we're going to see later just some background for that. Paul is writing to the church about coming to pick up a missionary offering that they had promised back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. They had promised that they were going to do this. They were willing to do it. Some things had happened. He sent another letter that was kind of like, hey, you know, let's get back on track. We have 2 Corinthians, which is actually his third letter to them, but we don't have uh, the, the second letter. And so he writes that to them and says, hey, now that things are back on track, you've repented in chapter 7, let's get ready. We're going to send people over to pick up this gift that you have promised for the needy church in Jerusalem, the Jews over there. And so he's going to do that. But in the midst of that context, we see so many evidences of giving as an act of grace that are so helpful for us. But first, we're going to see that it is actually an act of grace. In chapter 8, and verses 1 and 2, it says, We wish to make known to you, in the beginning there, the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That even, let me go back here, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll read the verses 1 and 2 for you. I'm using the New American Standard, if you didn't catch on to that. And I just tell you that that is the, my heart language, if you will. Everyone has grown up with a translation that they like and different things like that and memorized verses and, you know, there are a lot of different things there and you can study translations with people. But that's what I'm using because that's where my heart is and that's the Bible that I have worn out and I know where things are. So that's the why I'm using that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So they're in deep poverty and they are still giving. And here is the grace of God working through them to give liberally, specifically in, the, in this context. In chapter 8 and verse 4, we find grace again in the favor or the privilege. They were begging us with ur much urging for the favor or participation in the support of the saints. And that word favor there is the Greek word for grace also. It is charis, I think, and that is the correct mispronunciation of that Greek word. And so, just so you know, but it is the same word, right? And grace, as we know, is unmerited favor. And so we can translate that, favor. So you might even say that they're saying 
we are begging you and urging for the grace of participation in the support of the saints. Okay? So we see it there as well. In verses 6 and 7 as well, you see this work of grace, and the ESV translated, an act of grace. Right? Verse 6, so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this act of grace, this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also, this act of grace. That's what the Bible calls it. So I didn't make it up. But it's interesting to understand and to see those things and to really work through why would you call it that, right? And verse 9 helps us with that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And there is the motivation and the prompting and the enabling factor in all of our giving as an act of grace because God in Christ God gave us grace in Christ. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 5 there, it says also, not as we had expected at first, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God, because they know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And so there's the motivating and prompting and enabling factor in all of our giving as an act of grace. And then in chapter 8 and verse 19, we also see it is an act of grace. Not only this, he says, but he is also appointed by the church, was appointed by the church, been appointed by the church, to travel with us in this gracious work, this act of grace, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show your readiness. So again, it is an act of grace. Excuse me. And then in chapter 9 and verse 8, we see in the context of, of giving as well, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And in this context, this grace is specifically talking about material things and the spiritual motivation behind it. He is going to give you the ability, his gracious ability, the monetary ability to go and to live out these principles. So in this context, the grace is specifically about the material aspects with the spiritual behind it. 9.14 there, Paul ends with the surpassing grace of God. While they also, by prayer, on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, evidenced by their giving. And they're preparing this offering for the missionary giving. So, is that helpful? So, giving is an act of grace. And that's a good way to start. And as you think about that, and as you memorize that verse, and as you think through these things, begin to think about it. Every time I give an offering, it's an act of grace. Because of what God has entrusted to me. And how I can be a good steward. And how I can further His kingdom and meet needs and go forward. Okay? So... It is described as an act of grace in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And then it is depicted as an act of grace in the required tithes or taxes versus free will offerings. And we find this both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And we compare and contrast the tithes, or as we're going to see, they're basically taxes, and the free will offerings. You'll have that in the Old Testament 
And you'll have that in the New Testament as well. As MacArthur writes this, Offerings in all periods of biblical history, before the Mosaic Law, during the Mosaic Law, and after the Mosaic Law, in the church age, have always fallen into two basic categories, required tithes and free will offerings. These two kinds of offerings are side by side throughout the scripture. And we'll find that to be true. But let's make sure. First we'll see the Old Testament required tithes and taxes versus free will offering. And I'm just highlighting different things there to fill in the blanks. First, there are tithes and taxes versus offerings. And then we have required versus free will emphasize those different aspects and what the Bible calls them. The Old Testament required tithes and taxes. First, what is a tithe? Anybody know? 10%. All right, so a tithe is 10%, right? So we don't tithe 3%. If we tithe, we're giving 10%, right? If we give 3%, we give 3%. That's great. But technically, if you don't give 10% and you give 3% and call it a tithe, that's kind of a misnomer just for the word. But we'll get more into that. All right. So they had three different tithes in the Old Testament. Okay? And that's why you see in Malachi, you're robbing me of the tithes, plural. Right? The first tithes were the annual Levite tithe, if you will. Okay? It was given annually to support the Levites as God's leaders of his theocracy. That was the government under God, is the theocracy. We live under a democracy here, right? We have a government that we pay taxes to. And so the first annual tithe was the Levite tithe. You find in Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord, it is Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And in Numbers 18.21, we have some clarification. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. So the first tithe, given annually, 10%, is for the Levites, right? Because they didn't get to have land and things like that to take care of themselves. Then you have a second tithe, also given annually, right? And this is called the festival tithe, if you will. Is taken to Jerusalem for the national potluck, if you will. We'll see that. It's a biblical thing now, right? All right. Deuteronomy 14, to 26. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. There's annual. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd, of your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And in verse 26, and there, there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So this tithe you take and you sit down with the, the Levites and everyone else from the nation and you have a big meal and you thank the Lord and you rejoice because God loves a cheerful giver, just like in the New Testament, right? So you have the festival tithe as well and you see those differentiated in the Old Testament. And there's also a third tithe. Now, this one is given every three years, okay? And this is a tithe for the poor and the needy and the local Levites. So it's the poor tithe, we'll call it. It's to help the widows, the orphans, and the needy local Levites. So you'll take one tithe down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, it's up on the mount, and that'll be a tithe. And then every three years, you give your tithe to the local Levites. 
right? So it's a third. In Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29, he goes on, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town instead of taking it to Jerusalem. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien and the orphan and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So now you have a third tithe. Now, this could be considered the same as the second tithe, but every three years, instead of taking it to Jerusalem, you take it, give it locally. Or it could be considered, if you look at the context, it could be also interpreted as another tithe. Okay? And so you can work through that as well. There's some more taxing required. There's the half-shekel temple tax as well. And that is to be given annually. In Exodus chapter 30 and verses 11 and 12, when you take a census, you may also call it the census tax, right? Take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among you when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. A half shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel is a contribution to the Lord. And so you also have that. The census tax, right? And that, you'll see that in the New Testament as well. It's the two drachma tax where Jesus goes and, and fishes that out, tells Peter to fish it out and pay it for them. It's the half shekel, right? According to the temple. So we have several different things happening here, several different tithes, plural, in the Old Testament. Okay, you have the, the 10%, you have the first annual tithe. You have the second annual tithe, and you have a third tithe every three years. You have the half-shekel census or temple tax as well, annually. So there's quite a few different tithes in the Old Testament, right? And if you add all those up, you have two to three required tithes, depending on how you look at the third one, plus the temple tax equals 20 to 24% annually that you're giving to the the work as a tithe, to God's work as a tithe, right? And that was basically taxes. If you look at what we give today, the average person gives about 20% or so in taxes to the government. Even Joseph, when he was getting ready to save the grain in Egypt, right? Here's a pagan country and stuff like that. How much did he set aside every year so they would have enough? 20%, a fifth. Interesting. So... Tithes were taxes to support the theocratic government of Israel. That was very important for me to understand. So now, we're going to look at Old Testament free will offerings. Because we also have free will offerings right next to some of these things. Okay? In Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, and 35, 4 through 9 and 36, 1 through 7. I don't have these up there, so we're just going to look at these ourselves here because they were kind of long and took a lot, a lot of stuff. Exodus 25, 1 and 2. Let's go there. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. How much? Doesn't say. Well, how will I know? Well, whatever you purpose in your heart. 
Every man whose heart moves him, that is what he wants to give. We're going to raise a contribution. And you go over to chapter 35 and verses 4 through 9. Moses spoke to all the congregation. This is the thing which the Lord is commanding, saying, Take from among you the contribution for the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart. Here it is again, that willing heart. Let him bring it to the Lord, a contribution of gold, silver. And he goes through all of the different things there and the things that are needed. Right? All of the gold, silver, all the stuff for the tabernacle, right? They're getting ready to build that. And so he says, everybody who has a willing heart, just bring whatever you want. Whatever you have. Maybe you don't have the porpoise skins. Maybe you don't have the gold and silver. Maybe you bring something different, but you give and you give whatever you purpose in your heart. Now in chapter 36 and verses 1 through 7, same context of the tabernacle. Bezalel and Aholiab, another perfect trans, uh, uh, pronunciation of those words, right? And every skillful person in whom the Lord has put skill under understanding to know how to portion out all the work and the construction of the sanctuary shall perform in accordance with all the work is commanded. Moses said, every skillful person in whom the Lord skill, everyone whose heart stirred him, again, everyone whose heart stirred him, to come and do the work to perform. Moses received the contributions which the son of Israel had brought to perform the work and the construction of the sanctuary. And he continued bringing him free will offerings. Verse 3. So these are all free will offerings, whatever they purposed in their heart. That sounds like New Testament giving. Okay, so they're just doing whatever they purposed in their heart. And you go on down through there. Verse 4, okay. Moses said, the people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work on the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people are restrained from giving any more. For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Wow, that's great. So they gave whatever they purposed in their heart. God says, just give willingly. Here's what we need. Made the need known. We need all these different materials to build the tabernacle. Just give whatever you want. And they got to the point where it's like, it's too much. They had more than enough for the work to do. Because their hearts were right. And they rejoiced in the Lord. All right? So that's part of it. In Leviticus chapter 22, in verse 18 to 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers, over there. Leviticus 22. All right, in verse 18. Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, any man of the house of Israel or the aliens in Israel who present his offering, whether it is a votive or any other free will offering which they present to the Lord for the burnt offering, you accepted it. It must be, and he talks about the different things that are there that they would do, but it talks about a free will offering again in the context of the other burnt offerings and votive offerings and sin offerings and peace offerings. So it's a separate thing, this free will offering. He goes on down and he talks about the, the, what is you know, acceptable, what is not acceptable. In verse 21, when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, to fulfill a special vow or a free will offering. Here's what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be in verse 23. 
is in respect to an ox or a lamb, which is an overgrown or stunted member, you may present it for a free will offering, but not in other things. So it keeps going down through here of contrasting and comparing the regular offerings, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings with just free will offerings, right? In Numbers chapter 18 and verse 11, we see some more. This is also yours, the offering of their gift, even all the wave offerings, the sons of Israel, I have given to them and to you and to your sons and daughters, uh, the Levites here. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. All the rest of the fresh oil, the best of the wine, the grain, the first fruits of those things, uh, give to the Lord, I give them to you. The first ripe fruits of their land, which they bring to you, these are for everyone. They're clean to eat and devoted to you. Every first issue, well, they talked about the, the sons and the redemption, all those things like that, all in the context of a free will offering, right? These are free will offerings that God has uh, ordained or put in his word that we can give. So we have free will offerings and we have other offerings as well. Let me get back on track here. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 6. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your tithes, your contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings. Okay, so we have a variety of different offerings uh, mentioned again there in Deuteronomy. And then Ezra chapter 7 and verse 16, we see the free will offerings as he's getting ready to, Nehemiah is getting ready to go over to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall and do those things. People give whatever they purpose in their heart. Again, the gold and the silver to go and to reestablish the wall and the temple in Jerusalem. So they're giving freely. Some of them didn't go. Some of them just gave their money as well. And then 1 Chronicles 29, 1 through 9. This is helpful. If you get over there, 1 Chronicles 29, 1 through 9. I think next week I'm going to put those verses up there for you. Make it a little easier. Because we're going to run out of time. First Chronicles 29, here is David, said to the entire assembly, my son Solomon, whom God has chosen, is still young, inexperienced, the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord. Now with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God, gold, silver, and things, and uh, bronze, and he goes down through there. Moreover, in my delight, and the house of my God, the treasure I have, gold, I have I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided in the temple. And he goes through and he lists some of those things as well. Then the rulers, verse 6, and the fathers of the household and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of the thousands and hundreds and overseers offered willingly for the service of the house of God. And they gave 5,000 and 10,000. They gave all those things. Whoever possessed, verse 8, precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord and the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. And then verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly. For they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. So here they are for the temple. They did it for the tabernacle. And they're doing it for the temple now. They're just giving willingly and freely so that these things can be done. And they're happy to do it. God loves a cheerful giver. You see this throughout the New Testament. So offerings were given freely to meet needs and further God's work. All right? Offerings were given freely to meet needs and to further God's work in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament also has required taxes, 
and free will offerings. And we'll see that to be true. In the New Testament, the required taxes you see in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. Here is that temple tax that we talked about where they asked Jesus, are you going to pay that? Matthew 17, verse 24. It says, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax, we talked about that in the Old Testament, right? They came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the fish, the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. It's the half shekel temple tax, right? There's one shekel for the two of them. And so, Jesus paid it, right? So that he wouldn't offend them, be a good testimony, a good citizen. Matthew 22 and verse 15. The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. They sent their disciples to him. Teacher, we know you're truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. Let us then, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought it to him, brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. He said, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. So, pay your taxes, Jesus says. In Matthew 23, 23. Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provision of the law Justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you have done without neglecting, should have done without neglecting the others. Here's the Pharisee, and he's talking about, oh, I give all my tithes. Well, why would he still give a tithe in the New Testament? Still under the Old Testament law there. He is still fulfilling that. But anyway, he was doing it in a, in hypoc- in a hip- hypocritical way. And by the way, you don't brag about paying your taxes, right? You just pay them. Romans chapter 13. At least most people don't brag about paying their taxes. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Right? Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have also opposed, they, they all have all. They and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Take my glasses off so I can read. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear of authority? Do what is good. Do you you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of you, of God, to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. It does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath 
on men, on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to, to this very thing. Render to all what is due, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whose custom due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. So, pay your taxes, right? So, in the New Testament, required taxes are support to support the Gentile government that God has ordained over us. So, that's what our taxes are, right? Just like the Old Testament tithe or taxes was to support the theocratic government that God had ordained. Second, in the New Testament, we also see that there's required the, the New Testament free will offerings as well, right? We know about Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 47 as the church is founded here. And again, we know that Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing what they did, not prescribing that we all must do these things. But there are some very good examples of how these people gave what they had purposed in their heart willingly and freely. So we have New Testament free will offerings in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing with all as anyone would have need. Nice. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were selling their property and their possessions and making sure no one had a need. That's what we do. That's free will. How much? It doesn't say. They sell 10% of their property? 15% of their property? Some were selling all of it. So they were... Giving, and they were selling to meet the needs. Did that say that they sold everything? And if you didn't sell everything, then you weren't righteous and you weren't giving enough? That's not what it says. Because later on, we'll see someone else who was there sell some more, right? In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, the congregation of those believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him as his own, but all things were common property to them again. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute to each as any had need. And so here again, they're just doing whatever is needed. Those who had something would give to those who didn't have something. They would sell their property and take care of them. There was a lot of persecution and things going on. So it's just a free will offering. No amount set, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7. We looked at this a little bit a while ago. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. How much? How often? doesn't say. Now we might find something in the rest of this chapter that might give some evidence of how often we might want to give. But it doesn't say. God loves a cheerful giver whatever you have purposed in your heart. Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. Free will giving as well.
as a gift, right? As a spiritual gift. Chapter 12, verse 8, in the context here of all these spiritual gifts, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality. Right? Some people have the gift of giving, and they give liberally. How much? Liberally. Whatever you've purposed in your heart, they give a lot. And God tends to bless them to be able to give a lot because that's their heart. Some people shouldn't win the lottery right? because they are not good stewards and it would take them away, as Timothy says. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and some by chasing after it have fallen away from the faith. But other people, you can give them as much as you can give them and they just keep giving. They're quite content, as Paul has said. So, and then in Luke chapter 6 and verses 34 and 35 as well. Very helpful in our free will giving. Luke chapter 6, verse 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend, lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So you give to your enemies even, and you lend expecting nothing in return to meet a need and to further God's purposes and glorify him. All right? First Timothy 6.18, the last one here. And we will be hopefully on time. First Timothy 6.18. Get over there. First Timothy 6.18, there we go. Instruct them who are rich, I'm talking about those, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. How much? Whatever they purpose they are, just be ready. You're rich, you're wealthy, you have these things. God has entrusted them to you, all right? Then you look at Hebrews 13, 16, you can look at that one. But offerings in the New Testament were given freely to meet needs and to further God's work. Nice. Consistent. God's word doesn't contradict itself. And it's always about our heart because God loves a cheerful giver. So, summary for today. Pay your taxes. Give to the church and to meet other needs. If you want to give a tithe, 10% of your income, as your free will offering to the church, that's fine. But it's not required in the New Testament. It's a nice number, though. If you believe tithing hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, be sure to give 20% or more of your income to the church. That's okay. But don't do it for that reason if you want to give that much. All right. And if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer those for you. But thank you for your attentiveness and your grace and continue to pray for us. And next week we'll begin to look at giving as an act of grace in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and these evidences we can see in our lives as giving as an act of grace. All right? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this time. Thank you for what you have given to us in Christ. Thank you for hearts that are changed. Just thank you for instructing us. We want to be cheerful givers. Your word is so sufficient. And thank you for unpacking these truths for us today. May we worship you in spirit and in truth as we go forward. For your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.